city streets and the quiet town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. Dr. Ron is a nationally renowned forensic criminologist who leads the nation's finest forensic death investigations team. Your host, Dr. Ron Martinelli, will lead this investigation. Recently, the media has been full of stories about allegations of sexual assault and hate crimes. Most notably, uh, several women came forward during the nomination and confirmation process for then-Supreme Court nominee Brent Kavanaugh. Now we have a Hollywood actor, Jussie Smollett, who has made allegations in the city of Chicago that he was assaulted, a rope was put around his neck, caustic fluids were thrown on his chest, and he's representing himself as a victim of a hate crime. So how do police investigators determine forensically who's telling the truth and who's not telling the truth? And for those people who are not telling the truth and falsely reporting, what could their motivations be? Well, I brought in to discuss these issues with me Dan Sosnowski. Dan has a fascinating background. He's a former senior research fellow in forensic psychology at the University of Birmingham in the United Kingdom. And in 2008, he was selected as a subject matter expert to teach counterintelligence command in Iraq on behalf of the United States government. He's been selected in the past as a subject matter expert to work with John Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory, which developed the FBI Interactive Computer Interview Program. And welcome to the show on a thread of evidence, Dan Sisnowski. How are you doing, Dan? I'm doing fine. Thanks for inviting me on your program. Yeah, well, so let's get right into it because we have so much to discuss in regards to forensic interviewing. So first of all, Tell us what forensic interviewing is all about, Dan. Well, just like anything at forensic, we want to look and apply things that we know that are working. We want scientific-based uh, evidence to, to help us get through these things. Uh, we, we always hear about interviewing uh, individuals. We always hear about you know the typical interview interrogation tactics and techniques that have been in existence forever. And over the last probably 10 years, there's been a lot of research done saying things that we did believe are no longer valid. So now we have to do and look at empirical studies. Uh, what's the scientific base? What, what are the experts out there saying? What works? What doesn't work? Uh, why are we still employing some tactics that turned out to be old wives' tales? So uh, we, we want to stay on top of any, any kind of forensic. It's this, it doesn't matter what the uh, the basis is, but it's forensic science, it's forensic interviewing, it's forensic gathering. For it's just because people want to believe in forensic works, right? You know that that's correct. And you know, uh, in in my time as a detective and, and as a forensic investigator, I use a variety of different types of interview techniques. I like to use a con sort of a combination of a cognitive behavioral interview and also a kinesic interview. And maybe we could talk a little bit about cognitive behavioral interviewing and the differences, what we look for, and how we schedule up a uh, cognitive behavioral interview, and then what is a, a kinesic interview? What's that all about? Well, the, the term kinesic obviously comes from kinesiology, and it's, you know, the, 
study of body language. Um, but that's where some of it is, is con falling off the, uh, the guides. Is this, is this really good scientific basis? Uh, it was, you know, believed back in the forties when, you know, John Reed started looking at certain behavior, nonverbal behavior saying, well, are, are these indicators of maybe the person's being deceptive? They're hiding something. Um, and it's been involved and it came about to, well, if the person crosses their arm, crosses their legs, they lean away from me, they look to the left, they look to the right, it means certain things. But unfortunately, I, I truly believe that people have taken that information and say, well, when I see certain things like that, especially in combination when there's a cluster, uh, that's a real good sign that they're lying. Uh, and unfortunately, that's where a lot of bad mistakes are being made. Uh, I go around the country, I've been teaching interview interrogation courses for 25 years. Uh, I, I was trained, I worked at Reed and Associates, I was trained there as my polygraph background. Uh, I worked uh, teaching on behalf of Public Agency Training Council, uh, the Knesset interview uh, technique that Stan Walters developed. Uh, and then people say, well, I, I, I know he was lying. And they go back and say, why? You know, what did you see? Because I, I play a lot of videos. Correct. So what did you see in the video? And, and, and that's what I would hear the feedback. Well, he, he wasn't looking at us. You know, he was stiff. He was rigid. Uh, he moved around too much. Uh, but those are indications of lots of different things. Sure. I would agree. Those, I, those are also indications of stress. Exactly. And, or nervousness. Right. Or someone or, feels uncomfortable about the topic. Exactly. But, but again, how many times could an individual who's potentially telling the truth be nervous, anxious, and worried, uh, especially when they're being interviewed by the police or maybe even a boss? Anytime there's that interview situation, people get nervous. And how do they exhibit nervousness? Well, it could be manifested in many, many, many different situations. But the point I was always try to make when I'm teaching police officers and investigators and I bring up the point and say, let's let's look at this room. We, we've got police officers and detectives from many different jurisdictions. How many individuals in this room do you think you could go into a courtroom and say, Your Honor, I think this person was lying to me because he leaned away, crossed his arms, and crossed his legs? And every single one of them said, Well, I could never do that. And I said, Okay, uh, there's my point. If if we can't testify to that fact, why are we looking for it so much? And when we look for it so much, we miss the major situations, and that's the, the verbal side, where a person is is talking about their story. And then we start picking up the inconsistencies. And we, because inconsistencies, we can go to court and testify to inconsistencies all day long. Now, the inference, you know, the judge can make it, the jury can make, well, here's an inconsistency here, here's an inconsistency there, is there's an inconsistency there. Does it mean they're lying? Well, it could be, depending obviously what it is, but when we start seeing a lot of inconsistencies, right. that opens up the door for a good interviewer to expand and uh, ask further questions. Yeah, you know, I totally agree with you. You know, one of the things that I find as an interviewer is the body language is okay to look at, but, you know, I have a background in forensic psych, so I understand that there are a lot of things that motivate a person to 
you know, cross their legs or to sit farther back or, you know, to do these things. Those things are not forensic indicators for me because that's mere speculation because exactly. there's so many variables as to why a person would feel uncomfortable and would move their body around or, or do these different things, which, as you've indicated, are the kinesic side of it. More importantly to me, it is the inconsistencies of the statements, something that I can actually bring into court. And one of the things, and it's funny because I've, I've got a case right now someplace in the United States I can't discuss, but because there were so many inconsistencies in this individual's stories, I developed what's referred to as a statement or testimony matrix. And what I do is I, com I combine and compare and contrast all the different statements that the individual has given and then talk about the inconsistencies because that's more scientific and that is something that an expert can bring into court. Would you agree with something like that? Oh, absolutely. Because again, there's many times we have this, again, we live in a society when you start saying, oh, okay, interrogation. Uh, interrogation's got that absolute negative connotation. Correct. People automatically think they're 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 getting beat up. Uh, you're, you're, I mean, you're, you're waterboarding and bright, bright lights. Light. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, I, I spent uh, early in my career. I, I was I was a police officer six and a half years in the Chicago suburbs. So that's why this current case is kind of interesting me. But of course, that was years ago. Um, that's before we had all the technology and the videos. Uh, and, and I think videos keep people straight, but it's that word interrogation. The general public, you know, looks at that and says, gosh, that's really bad. Uh, we see, oh, we took them to the interrogation room. Uh, it, they don't say interview room. Right. Um, it just, as soon as you say, well, I, I need to interrogate you, people are going to get upset. But it goes back to what you're saying about the inconsistencies. I, I don't, I don't like the idea of interrogating anybody. I don't want to accuse them. And that's part of the problem sometimes we see that the, some of the uh, interview tactics and techniques right away go to accusatory statements. Uh, I know you did it. You better tell me you did it. If you don't tell me you did it, you're, you know, your butt's going to go to jail. Right. And, and that's not going to work. I, I wish, yeah, we're back to the inconsistencies. To me, that's a huge thing because if I'm going to cross a line and get into an AKA interrogation, I want to be able to have those inconsistencies written down or back in my head and go in there and, and so look, I want to afford the individual the opportunity to resolve his inconsistencies. Right. You not, know, not interrogate him. Yeah, and I absolutely agree with you because there is a huge difference between an interrogation and an interview. And I think you get a lot more things accomplished by creating a conversation and having an interview with somebody than not. You know, and you know, one of the things that, uh, that that strike me as as being interesting is that a person who is not telling the truth will consistently be inconsistent in their statements, and they're, and they're looking at the interrogator or the interviewer and getting their keys. They're studying the interviewer just as much as we're studying them, and the person who's deceptive takes their keys off the interviewer as to whether their story is resonating or not with the interviewer. Absolutely. Because they're, they're assessing us just like we're assessing them. Right. But but it's so difficult uh, to sit there as an interviewer, especially as a police officer or detective, and, and you're sitting across from an alleged suspect. And when that suspect actually starts lying to you, the human nature of us, we want to 
pounce all over that. We want to we want to go for the juggler. And and as soon as a person says something that we maybe even know is a lie based on the facts that we have, we confront them. We get aggressive. We call them a liar. We call them lots of stuff. And that's where we lose it. Once you exactly what you said, there's a difference between the interview and interrogation. Interview is fact gathering. The interrogation is accusatory. Once you tell a person you're a liar, I, I don't care if you sit back and roll your eyes and go, really? Again, we call them a liar. Once we do that, or especially when you go on record saying, I don't believe you, uh, that's a bunch of BS. What well, did we accuse them? Well, many times that's the situation. And then could that, the complexity of the interview, especially if it's a police type situation, um, could Miranda come in and, and raise its uh, factors? Right. Uh, many times that's the case. But we can get more information by, by just by listening. And I think what you said, too, about the individual watching us and get cues from us. And, and this is one of the major points I try to teach uh, with the individuals. It's like, okay, if we have facts, if you've got data, if you've got evidence, you've got video, you've got whatever it is, and a person is, let them talk, let them tell their story. Right. And let's say we know for a fact they lied, and we we let it roll off our back. We don't call them. Well, many, many, many of those suspects, associated as sharp ones, will be thinking, wow, I just told this interviewer, I just told this detective a lie. He didn't call me on it. He must believe me. I, I just got away with a lie. And it, it encouraged them to keep going with, like you said, with more inconsistencies. And then usually five to 10 minutes, they test the water again. They'll throw out another little tidbit. Let's see if I can get away with this. And, and the more we don't challenge them, the more bold they get and, and the more inconsistencies come out. But you know, that that's a really good uh, comment that you've made. And I think a good tip for police detectives and uh, forensic interviewers that would be listening to this program is number one, don't interrupt suspects. Just let them tell their story. Be a good listener. And if you detect a lie, let it go because they will continue with another lie and another lie for two reasons. Number one, like you said, Dan, they're going to test you. They're going to test the resonance of the lie and what they can get away with. And if they're successful in their minds of getting away with that lie, they're going to lie again and lie again. But I think more importantly, let them walk down that road where they're telling a whole host of lies because towards the end of the interview process comes what we refer to as reconciliation. And we'll get to a confession once we're able to reconcile lies from truth. Absolutely. And I do the same thing. I, I, I call it a resolution stage. I, I want to afford the individual the opportunity to resolve his inconsistency. Exactly. Exactly. And, and that's the AKA interrogation, but you do it in a nice way. You let them set themselves up. Then you bring the inconsistencies to their mind. Once you've got them documented, then you can go back and say, well, hey, Joe, remember earlier you said this. Well, we, we found out this. Or you said that. We point the inconsistencies out to them. And ask them in a very nice, simple way. Could you please explain that to me? And it, the, the more inconsistencies you have, obviously, now they're sitting there wondering, well, gosh, I guess it didn't work. But the, the key point is, like you said, we can't interrupt, but we have that tendency to do that. 
You know, one of the things that, that I use when I start out with an interview, and, and it's kind of strange the people that are not used to watching me do a forensic interview with a, with a person of interest or a witness, is that when we start out in my conversation, I don't talk anything about why they're there, okay? I don't talk about the case. I don't talk about the allegations. I don't talk about anything except I try to find out what this person likes. What resonates with them? Do they have a hobby? Is there something oh, they like? Is it fishing? Is it hunting? You know, is it working on their cars? Is it working around the house? And the reason behind me doing that is I need a baseline of behavior, both physical behavior and language behavior with that person when they're in a relaxed state. Because after I've seen that baseline, now I know how this person behaves, and then I know what to look for in the interview with them. Would you agree with something like that as, as a technique? 100%, 100% agree. We have to find, again, early, early on during the interview process, tell me, tell me some of your habits, some of your interests, what are your hobbies. Uh, I want to find out their personality because we have to interview a lot of times it's based on their personality as well as the type of crime. So I want to find out um, and, and we, about their background. But the biggest thing, we've got to develop some kind of rapport. Um, we like to talk to people that we sort of feel comfortable with. Exactly. And we got to go out of our way and say, you know, it, there's, if we don't know anything about their background because that's not in their file, there's nothing wrong with saying, you know, talk to me, tell me your interests, tell me your hobbies. Um, what do you what do you like? What do you dislike? Uh, and we can find out a lot of information about that individual. Right. And, you know, people will talk a lot more with a person that they feel comfortable with and a person that they might even like or have a rapport with than a person that comes across being aggressive, interrupts, uh, and is doing more of, of an interrogation instead of an interview. Hey, listen, you're talking with Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist and forensic interviewer Dan Sowanowski. You're listening to A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. The Out Loud Perspective awaits you in life, love, politics, a healthy lifestyle, your faith, personal development, and living an out loud life on AmericaOutloud.com. Glitch your news and entertainment network where you can listen 24-7 on our free apps on both Android and Apple. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. 
Hey, you're back with Dr. Ron Martinelli on a thread of evidence. My special guest today, Dan Sosnowski, a forensic interviewer. Dan, when we were uh, last talking about interviewing, we were actually talking about the interview process. I'd like to sort of switch gears for a minute and talk about false reporting and why people falsely report uh, crimes, such as crimes to themselves, such as sexual assaults, or in the case of Jussie Smollett, that's been all over the news, uh, a hate crime. Well, there's you know, there's a lot of different reasons, and, and I've been involved in this field for, gosh, going on 40 years, especially uh, administering polygraph examinations, and we do have individuals coming in and saying, well, here's the situation. I, I, I'm a victim, whatever of, of behavior that was, and I start looking at why. Um, especially if we, when, when the bottom line comes down to it's shown or proven that this was a false report. And I, I was looking at and making some notes, and um, we look at the major reasons, I think. One is revenge. You know, the, why would someone uh, file some kind of a accusation? Well, a lot of times it's because I want to get even with them. Um, but we look at other ones, uh, shame, uh, embarrassment, uh, there's greed. Uh, they want to get rewarded some way, somehow. Um, they do it maybe for attention um, because it's they want sympathy. Uh, they want the notoriety. Uh, so sometimes things overlap. And, and, and if, unfortunately, you know, it, it's shown that it happened in this case in Chicago, do we go back and say, why? Why, why would he do it? Well, let's talk about let's talk about Smollett's case, at least as far as what we know in getting press releases from Chicago PD and also, uh, you know, from the media. So we've got Mr. Smollett, who's a uh, an actor that uh, works uh, on the, the program, the series, The Empire, and he lives in a predominantly black and gay community. And so very recently, he comes forward and reports to the Chicago Police Department that he was a victim of a hate crime. And he identified uh, his attackers as two white men that were wearing either wearing Trump MAGA hats or they had made comments about MAGA, which associates the president of the United States with this with this crime he's got a rope around his neck and he states that they poured some sort of caustic chemical on him dan let's take it right from there as the initial report to the police and this is what's being represented by mr smollett who represents himself as a victim let's just take it through the normal investigative steps well of course you know we want to look at all those facts, and then again, yeah, we want the forensics to come in um, and have everything tested. And more likely, obviously, if, if some kind of a bleach they're kind of saying was poured, okay, it's going to be on. Okay, who who poured it on? We don't know. But then we got to go back and look at okay, what what reason would have would an individual who's reasonable, uh, successful, uh, articulate. Uh, why would he come up with this game plan? And then you, we go back to say, well, uh, from what the information is out there, is that he did see, receive some kind of a, a letter, a hate letter, um, and no one really did a whole lot. He didn't get the attention that he thought he was going to get from that. So now, do they, does he concoct this story, um, saying, all right, well, let's take it to another level. And let's make it a little bit more serious. So 
now we look at we got a combination. Is, is it the attention? Um, does he want to be rewarded? Uh, does he does he want that revenge because he didn't get what he maybe was looking for? Um, and and we have to look at those and and, and uh, understand that people have a good reason uh, to get involved and commit certain crimes. Good people do bad things doesn't make him a bad person. We just have to understand what reason does he have. Well, you know, let's let's uh, let me precede your comments because I think they're very well taken. When we get into the investigation of this, as as pretend I'm a detective and Mr. Smollett comes to me, I want to get into the forensics. First of all, I want to hear a story. But exactly. then it's all about the collection of evidence because ultimately it's always about the reconciliation of a person's statements with, you know, circumstances, facts, and forensic evidence. So look at the evidence that we could possibly recover from an interview and a relationship between detective and Mr. Smollett. So number one, he's got a rope around his neck. So we're going to take that rope and we're going to try to figure out where that rope came from. Okay. Cause yeah. it just didn't appear out of nowhere. No. Okay. The next thing is that he represents that they threw a caustic chemical on him. So we're going to snag that shirt and we're going to have that caustic chemical tested to find out really, you know, what kind of chemicals uh, comprised this uh, particular caustic chemical and where could those chemicals be found ultimately. The next thing, he is assaulted in his own neighborhood. So Mr. Smollett is an openly gay man that happens to be black and he lives in a community that's consistent with his race and his lifestyle. So the demographics are probably the first red flag that would show up to me because he wasn't assaulted outside of his neighborhood. He was assaulted inside of his neighborhood. So what people that would be, according to Mr. Smollett, racially motivated would come into that neighborhood and feel so brazen as to assault a black man, two white guys assaulting a black man in a black neighborhood. They'd stick out like a sore thumb, but anything is possible. So the next thing is, tell me a story. Tell me what happened. And then doing a victimology of Mr. Smollett, trying to develop a psychological profile of our victim and what would be the relationship of this man who just coincidentally happens to be an actor assaulted by two men that don't recognize him and they're just assaulting him like they would any other black man or any black gay man. So the language from Mr. Smollett attributed to the supposed assailants is very important. Absolutely. So let's let's move forward on how the investigation continues. So every place these days is full of some sort of video recording. And a lot of these communities these days, and, and uh, this happened in Chicago, but boy, New York, uh, which I was just recently at, is a great example. There are cameras everywhere. And then plus, don't forget, there's cell phones, there's all sorts of cameras, and there's surveillance cameras in front of people's houses, there's ring doorbells, there's ring cameras. I mean, my house is totally encircled 
by cameras. Yes. So there's no way that you're going to get anywhere near my house without being recorded. Okay. So detectives go out and they do these things referred to as neighborhood canvases. And that's what they did in this case. Do you remember what they found, Dan, or didn't find? Yeah, well, there was some gaps. And you go back to a timeline. You say, well, there's, he's on video. He's seen here or going there. But then all of a sudden, there's that, that gap that all of a sudden, then later on, uh, he's seen with the rope around his neck. But what, what it doesn't show, how did the rope get on his neck? That's put exactly on his neck? right. It's so this, just, yeah. He's in a blind spot. Well, but that's is, that, it. Yeah. is that a coincidence? Or is that intended? You know, the important thing is with all this video going on, there is not the critical piece of video that shows this assault. Okay. Which you think they would in this day and age. Actually, and that's right. But they do find a CCTV uh, video that shows two things, two separate videos. One that shows him directly after the attack walking down the street eating a Subway sandwich, all right, number one. And number two, how they found the two, not white guys, but two black men was by looking at the CCTV in the neighborhood and the temporal relationship of those men depicted in the TV camera and Mr. Smollett eating the Subway sandwich with the time that he said that he was assaulted. So the temporal relationship of all these videos those that don't show any assault and those that show him after the assault are critical. Absolutely. And again, now it goes back to what we've been saying the entire time. Where's the inconsistency? Uh, that's a huge one. So let's talk about the, the state that we're in right now. And that is that they have removed Mr. Smollett from the classification of victim to now person of interest. And let's talk about not the two white guys, but the two Nigerians that they were able to identify from a forensic analysis of the CCTV. Do you, do you remember a little bit about those two guys and what they were able to do with those two people of interest? Well, obviously they identified him. As you mentioned, they talked to him, executed search warrants and more bits and pieces of their information coming out. But again, we, we go back to doing that forensic kind of investigation background is what associations do these two individuals have and there's definitely a connection uh, be between these two individuals and mr smollett um and you get why okay uh, is it is it easier to convince somebody um who you may know to say all right hypothetically if we're going to do this attack let's do it this way um versus hiring somebody you don't know uh, which is always again this is this is very interesting um, and then how come? Well, you know, that's exactly right. And just for our listeners, and I know our uh, law enforcement people know this, but for our new forensic uh, team members, in order to get a search warrant, a, a police officer or detective needs something referred to as probable cause. And probable cause is generally defined as uh, circumstances, statements, facts, forensic evidence that cause a reasonably trained officer to believe that a person or persons committed a crime. In order to get that, you pretty much have to have evidence, including direct testimony or direct statements from people of interest, where you develop your probable cause. Because without that probable cause, you can't get a search warrant, unless you have consent. So 
just a little bit of speculation, but I'm going to throw in some actual police practices here. There's only two ways you get a search warrant. Number one, somebody lets you search their premises, or number two, you get probable cause, and that allows you to write a search warrant, a DA to take a look at it, a judge to sign it, and that means you get to go out and search the residence. In this case, we don't know yet whether they received consent from these two Nigerian guys or if they their statements presented the detectives with sufficient probable cause to get a search warrant. But I will tell you that at least what the police are saying is that these gentlemen have admitted to having a relationship with Josie Smollett being paid money to set up or choreograph this assault on Mr. Smollett. The detectives got their search warrant, searched one or both houses of these guys, and inside that residence, they found a magazine that had words cut out of it consistent with a threatening letter, not the one that Dan's talking about, but a second one, and more importantly, a receipt for the rope that ended up around Mr. Smollett's throat. Which is obviously very interesting. And then the other point I, I was thinking of is that, because you mentioned it, he, he, he goes from, well, the police say, well, he's probably not a victim. He's a person of interest. So something had a shift there. So that, that had to be we're back to that evidence. We're back to that probable cause. Was there something really there? Because, again, we're back to our society saying we want to believe victims. Uh, we don't want to label a victim as a potential liar. But there's something here that shifted this whole situation for the police to be thinking there's something there's something wrong here. And since this is such a high profile, I think they'd have to have something um, in, in their in their bag of tools to say, this gives us this reason to do it before they just make that announcement. Yeah, and you know, you're exactly right. And again, for our listeners, there are three basic classifications of people that police, or actually four, that, that police talk with. Number one is victims. Number two are witnesses. Number three are persons of interest. And number four are suspects. And so depending on what we learn from these categories of people, that allows us to place them into a certain classification. So what has happened along the way of this investigation is that the police had an initial interview with Mr. Smollett where he gave his representations of his allegations and, hey, I'm the victim and I got assaulted and this was a hate crime and they put a rope around my neck and then they uh, said some, uh, you know, some MAGA type things. Uh, We don't want you in this neighborhood. Make America great again. And that throws President Trump into this thing. And and not to be political at all, but what would be the reason for doing that? Well, anything having to do with the President of the United States or any president, for that matter, is going to get a lot of media attention. And then from that, we get the inconsistencies of the statements. Now we've got two people cooperating with the police because Legally, if you file a police report, that's a misdemeanor crime. So that's an arrestable criminal offense. But two people or more conspiring to even commit a misdemeanor, that's a felony offense. And now we're starting to talk about some serious jail time. And so that then, the the specter of these two Nigerian people of interest uh, getting hit with a serious felony, uh, that is the motivator 
for them to begin cooperating with the police in earnest. What do you think, Dan? Well, I totally agree with that statement because, again, you know, typical police work, we're always going to go find out, um, maybe you want to call it the weakest link, but who's going who's to take the first deal? Who, who can we use to flip on each other? Um, and these individuals, these two guys from Nigeria, thinking, well, I, I shouldn't say Nigeria. I, I understand they were, they were born and raised in Chicago. Um, right. I but, think they're of Nigerian descent, and that, right, that's, correct. that's all. Correct. Yeah. It, is that who has more to lose? Uh, who has more the game? Um, and, and, and the other comment you made about, you know, the MAGA situation, we said one of the major reasons people are going to file false police reports is for the attention and the sympathy. And, and by throwing the MAGA situation is because, again, that's how this country is going right now. We can get extra sympathy. I can get a lot more attention based on that. Um, and I, I read something earlier today that Jesse was saying, well, if, if he was a Muslim or he said Muslim people did this to him or black people uh, did this to him, uh, would he get the same attention? Um, who knows? Um, but it's interesting you said about, about, about lying. Uh, I also saw a report uh, earlier today that Jesse was convicted several years ago of lying to the police and giving a false name. And, you know, that, that's, that's a theme that comes up with other people that also falsely report. When we come back in a couple of minutes, we're going to continue our discussion about Jesse Smollett and, more importantly, about people who report falsely and the motivations for those false reports. And we'll talk about the case of Tawana Brawley as well. You're listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli and my special guest today, Dan Sosnowski, who's a forensic interviewer and polygraph examiner. You're listening to A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. This is Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist and host of A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. If you'd like to find out what forensic criminologists really do in the field and you're tired of the false narratives about law enforcement and want to unpack the cases that I've worked throughout the nation, then please pick up a copy of my new book, The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police, on sale right now at Amazon.com. That's The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police, at Amazon.com. Hey, we're back with Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist, and my special guest today, Dan Sosnowski, who's a forensic interviewer and polygraph examiner. And Dan, when we left off, we were talking about Josie Smollett, and now he's found himself in a bit of trouble. Uh, he's now moved from victim to the classification of a person of interest. Can you take us through the interview process with him? Now, I think you and I both agree that this guy's interviewing days with the, the Chicago Police Department are done. Uh, you were saying that he already got himself a high-profile criminal defense attorney, so the last thing that attorney is going to do is get this guy to cooperate with police. But let's just pretend that uh, he hasn't been moved yet to person of interest, and you're the detective, and Mr. Smollett's coming in for a voluntary interview with you. How are you going to handle that interview? Well, obviously, what we'd like to do is, you know, one, we're going to have him sit down. We're going to be talking uh, simple, basic um, concepts of what, what's going on. But also, in my situation, I'm always going to get 
get people to sign releases. Um, I have them fill out a biographic data sheet. I want to know about their overall physiology and, uh, and, and makeup. Are they, are they fit to be interviewed? Um, I want them to sign a release uh, saying they're giving me permission to interview them. Uh, and so they, 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 they kind of know what's going on. So we get the necessary paperwork out of, uh, by the side, and then we're going to sit down and talk and say, obviously, get his background, get his name, all that good basic clerical information, and say, okay, tell me about yourself. You know, Jesse, you know, where you're from, where you're raised, tell me your hobbies, tell me your interests, um, tell me how, do you, how, how would you describe your personality, uh, how do your friends look at you, because that will dictate to me, because i got to interview introverts and extroverts completely different. So, but I want to sit back and say, you know, I've got some interest. Tell me about that. I want to, the biggest thing, uh, we mentioned this earlier, we, we got to develop rapport. So when I look at, a, a, to me, a forensic interview is truly structured. We, we, we can't be willy-nilly. We've got to have some structure. And when I teach my course, I call it the five stages, a successful interview interrogation. But stage one is the introduction stage. We, we, we've got to learn some information about him. We've got to be able to come up with the rapport because we're back to people feel much more comfortable to talking to someone who shows an interest. And the easiest way, we just ask them, tell me about yourself. Uh, if, if we're going to have, especially a high profile, obviously as a detective, I'm, I'm going to do some digging about their background, where they're from, what are their interests, what is he doing? Obviously, he's on a TV program. Uh, I can easily go in there and say, well, look, um, Obviously, I'm a busy guy, and not, not too many chances to, to watch your program. Can you tell me about your program? I understand a little bit about it. Uh, you know, we can look at some of the people that are the actresses, actresses and actors and say, well, what about this person? And I know that the one key one uh, that plays, uh, I think her name is Taraji Henson. She used to play a police detective on a TV show and say, well, gosh, that's kind of interesting. We just got to find some commonality. Um, obviously, if I'm there, uh, you talked about, you know, Chicago, he was born and raised in Chicago. You know, I was born and raised on the south side of Chicago. What interest, you know, do you, I, I like the White Sox, do you like the Cubs and talk about the Bears? But just something to get him, one, comfortable. And then, you know, maybe we talk, it could be 10, 15 minutes, depends. And then it's all right, okay, Jesse, um, let's go back to that night in question. And walk me through your evening. Let's let's go back. What, you know, what time did you leave your apartment, or where were you coming from? Just walk me through your day. Walk me through your evening. And we just got to sit there and let them talk, let them talk, let them talk, and let them talk, and keep talking. Then once he said, "Okay, end of the story," I went back to my apartment, called the police. Let's say. And then we said, "Okay, now I'm going to ask some some key questions, what I call diagnostic dialogue questions." Um, so, you know, for example, why, why do you think this happened? Why do you think someone would do something like this to you? Uh, what reasons do you think people had to do this to you? And again, let them talk, let them talk, let them talk. Um, but then, of course, one of the, the key questions that maybe a lot of the audience knows and realizes is, like, what, what do you think ought to happen uh, to the people who did this to you? And, and see what his attitude is about that. Right. And then, right. then we always follow up and say, well, okay, let's go hypothetical. we got to look at both sides here, Jesse. Uh, hypothetically, if you were to make this story up, why would you do that? Uh, and then listen for some of those reasons that we already know about. Uh, but then again, I think more importantly, say, okay, again, hypothetically, 
if you did make the story of Jesse, what, what should happen to you? And, and you know, Dan, that's a key, what I refer to as a transitional probative question. Okay, because when you ask that question, <laughs> uh, you know that you're on the track of looking at this guy now like a person of interest because that's a question where you're seeking what could have motivated you to falsely report. Exactly. In fact, in my, in my course that I teach, I call this. The, the probing stage. Right, exactly. Um, by design. Right. And, you know, I think with, with someone like Smollett, if this case goes to its logical conclusion, based on what we're sort of finding out now, and we'll find out more and more about these two other people of interest that he allegedly paid money to, according to them. Now, first of all, this is definitely going to the grand jury. And, of course, as you and I know, the grand jury, the district attorney controls what happens in the grand jury. Oh, sure. But, uh, you know, if, if everything is pretty consistent with what we're seeing, there's a pretty darn good chance that the grand jury is going to bill this guy and they're going to end up indicting him. Then the criminal defense attorney's problem is, well, he didn't back down on his story. This is what he told the police, and now he's stuck with it. They right. gave him a couple of different opportunities, including one just yesterday that he turned down to come in voluntarily and just tell his story, and he wouldn't do that. So to me, you know, the red flag that's raised is sort of a, a consciousness of guilt, and now he's going to shut down if he gets indicted, and now his defense attorney is left with his representation, which it doesn't really sound that great because they can't reconcile any of the circumstances and the facts and forensic evidence actually go against him, especially if these two fellas that he was associated with uh, give up the fact that he choreographed the whole thing and he was paying him to do it. Right, absolutely. So let's talk about let's talk about another famous case that that goes back into the nineteen nineties, uh, and that's the case of Tawana Brawley. Uh, do you remember that case, Dan, and and how how that case uh, uh, started up, and and what happened in regards to that case? Yeah, it was kind of similar type situation that she was saying. Uh, she's a black female. She was basically kidnapped, uh, held against her will, uh, raped. Uh, they, they carved some initials on her stomach. Um, threw some feces on her. Yeah, her, that's right. That's put, right. Put her in a bag and degraded her. Right, exactly. And what happened during the course of the Tawana Brawley conversation uh, and allegations is that everybody came out of the woodwork just like they've come out with the Smollett case. Uh, the uh, Jesse Jackson was huge in it. Ralph uh, or Ralph uh, Reverend uh, uh, Sharpton, Sharpton kind of made his reputation, made his bones on Tawana Brawley case. The district attorney uh, got sucked up into that case and ended up, you know, prosecuting. Uh, I think there were there was uh, one district attorney and there was at least one police officer and there were three or four other people that were were mentioned. Anyway, the whole thing went to nothing after a series of police interviews when Tuana Brawley finally gave up the fact that she made the whole darn thing up. Uh, and there was litigation that followed. I think the, uh, the guy that was the uh, district attorney at the time, he ended up uh, getting a settlement from uh, Al Sharpton and another guy by the name of Manson uh, who were uh, 
uh, activists uh, to the tune of about $340,000. And Jesse Jackson sort of, he just kind of like peeled back into the weeds. But this was a case where she was alleging sexual assault and a hate crime. Right. But again, we're back to the same. What what reasons? When these cases come out and they're proven uh, that it was a false allegation, we always look at those reasons. And it's just like it goes back to, we didn't even mention it, perfect example is the Duke LaCrosse situation. Uh, That's another great case. Yes. Yes. And and that was that, you know, that that uh, lady, uh, Crystal Magnum was her name. And Crystal Magnum had had a history of lying to police, just like Tawana Brawley had had a history of lying to police. And what happened with Crystal Magnum after the whole case uh, was shut down by the state attorney general's office is that years later, she killed her boyfriend. And now she's she's doing time in prison for that. So there's usually some sort of indication that people have lied to the police in the past. And it's just kind of interesting that uh, Josie Smollett has got a prior where he lied to the police as well and was uh, put on, he was uh, for that and DUI was put on 36 uh, months of probation. Hey, let's, let's uh, switch gears again to something that I think is near and dear to you. And that is the fact that you are a polygraph examiner so i got a couple of questions for you yeah so number one what's the myths about polygraph examinations versus the reality well i mean the the myths out there people saying well they they don't work uh they're scientific voodoo um courts don't allow but there's many courts across this country i believe it's roughly about half the states under certain circumstances it's called a stipulated agreement both sides agree and then the, the proceeding, the findings could be used in court. Um, so, but, but the concept about lying has been around forever um, because it goes back to the way we were raised, always tell the truth. And then we decide to lie causes a conflict. And when conflict is introduced to the body, your body reacts whether you want it to or not. Uh, your heart rate changes, your skin temperature changes, your breathing changes. You could be driving down the road, car cuts in front of you, you slam on the brakes. That's the conflict. We get the same little fuzzy feeling going on. But people always say, well, you know, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And I say, well, I, 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 when it's done right, you got to follow the protocol. You got to follow the techniques. You got to follow what's the scientific side of it saying now. Um, but people always say, well, no, I don't like the science. I don't like that. And there's been a lot of recent studies showing, yeah, yeah maybe it does work. Uh, but people say, well, maybe it's only 85% accurate. Okay. Well, there's a lot of well-known uh, medical examinations that are only about 85% accurate. There's going to be false positives, false negatives on both sides of the spectrum. So it, it depends on how it's done. Hey, um, Dan, I'm, I'm going to fail because I'm nervous. No, you don't <laughs> fail because you're nervous. Dan, let me ask you this question. How important is the pre-interview, before we even have that guy or gal hooked up to the machine, how important is the pre-interview and the overall search of the truth? It's probably one of the most important parts. That's why we we have a stage. A, a true polygraph is in three sections. It's the pre-test interview. Now we're back to that. That's the forensic side of it. Uh, so the pre-test interview is exactly what I've been talking about. I teach these, this course to police officers for, for 20, 25 years saying, look, there are many times really good polygraph examiners. We can, we can, when we're done with the interview, we can get a pretty good idea. 
is that person going to pass? Are they going to fail? And I'm talking to the tune of 80, 85%. So we're always trying to convey to the police officers, here's, follow this protocol, follow these these ideas to you and how we're successful. But the, with, with a bad pretest, I'm going to get a bad exam. Well, let's do this. You know, we've been talking during, you know, the, this, this first hour here uh, all about these different cases. But I'll tell you what, Dan, I'm fascinated by your background. Let's talk about Dan Zaznowski and how you got to be a forensic interviewer and a polygraph examiner. Can you talk to us about what kind of education and training and experience it takes for someone to start out if they're looking at a career as a forensic interviewer or maybe even as a polygraph examiner, what, what types of things would you did you go through and what types of things, what kind of tips would you have for members of our audience uh, on how to do what Dan Sosnowski does very successessfully? I'd love to. Um, people say, well, it just, just kind of happened overnight. No, there's a long transition here. I, I started out, I joined the Army Jeez, in 1969, I uh, was a military police officer. Uh, I liked it. When I got out, I, I joined the police department. So I was a police officer six and a half years in the Chicago suburbs. Um, did several things. I was a juvenile officer. I was an investigator. I gave a breathalyzer. And I, I just got interested in the field of polygraph because I knew someone at the time was working at John Reed and Associates. And we were related by marriage, and I was your typical police officer. Oh, this don't work. This is, you know, this is bad stuff. And he said, look, when, you're, when, you, when you think you're ready, one, in Illinois at the time, you had to have a baccalaureate degree to get in to the, to the school. So once I did that, I said, well, okay, well, I'm interested. So I, I gave up my career. I asked for a leave of absence for the police department. They wouldn't give me one. And I said, well, you know, I'm going. So I quit my job as a police officer. Uh, decided I want to go through this training. It was it was six months long every day, nine to five. Uh, it was a postgraduate course, very intense, very difficult. All right, so once I graduated polygraph in May 1980, uh, it's been out in the field ever since then in this crafting my my craft and 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 learning more about it, and I think becoming proficient at it. So I've been doing polygraph now 39 years. Um, I'm a past president of the American Polygap Association. I'm still active uh, in conducting polygap tests. I get polygap tests on a regular basis. Um, and I have to get my continued education. So for, for someone who's interested in it, the best thing to do is, is go to the website. You know, it's polygraph.org. Um, that's the American Polygap Association website. And, and click on accredited schools. And there's schools all across the country and all international. Uh, what you have to do to become uh, recognized and accredited. Uh, and the certain states have a licensing law, so you have to go through that. Um, but for me, it's, it's been a wonderful career. Uh, and it was something that just, you would know, look back and say, well, what if, what if, what if? And this has turned out to be, for me, a wonderful opportunity. And I've been fortunate enough when I'm, when I'm teaching interview interrogation, it always comes in with polygraph, it always comes in. And I've had many detectives so, gosh, you know, that really sounds interesting. I'd like to go. And and every once in a while, I'll bump into somebody and say, well, Dan, you know, you made it sound so interesting and fascinating that, yeah, I did put in for polygraph, and I did get accepted, and I did in their polygraph examiner. So that's, to me, rewarding. Hey, Dan, let me ask you this question. You know, sometimes people don't want to go through 
the law enforcement side in order to uh, do some of the things that you and I do, and especially something that you would do, which is forensic interviewing and uh, becoming a polygraph examiner. Do they always have to go? I know it's better. You and I would both agree it's always better to have street smarts by being a cop and a detective first, but do they have to do it that way? Can they take you know, courses uh, independent of that and uh, start a career in this area? It, it, they could, but again, like you said, it, it'd be difficult. Sure. Um, because this day and age, people want to know, did you do the work? Did you? Did, can you walk the walk and talk right. the talk? Right. I, I totally agree. You know, uh, our, our brand new launch company, ETC Forensic, has a number of forensic courses, both for the law enforcement forensic community, but also for brand new startup uh, students, undergrads and grads. And of course, I'm going to encourage them to do that as I'm encouraging you, Dan, to become a adjunct faculty member at ETC Forensic so we can, we can get some good courses up there on forensic interviewing. But I think this is a great time to talk about your company and how people can get a hold of Dan Sosnowski. Well, that's easy. All, the easiest way is to contact me by phone. My phone number is 770-843-1019. Or, they, of course, they can visit my website, which is polygraph-pro.com. Well, let's do that one more time. Your phone number is 770 1019 or my website is polygraph-pro.com. Well, boy, what a fascinating interview today and discussion I'm having with polygraph examiner and forensic interviewer Dan Sosnowski at Polygraph Pro. You're listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist, and Dan Sosnowski on a thread of evidence on America Out Loud.